If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alex Montobel, and this week, I'm excited for you to meet Girish Matthew Bootham, the founder and CEO of Freshworks, the company that creates business software anyone can use. G started Freshworks in 2010, and the product has evolved into a robust suite for IT, customer support, sales, and marketing teams. Freshworks builds products that are designed to let everyone work more efficiently and deliver more value for immediate business impact. Freshworks went public in 2021 and boasts a market cap of around $6 billion. The company serves more than 65,000 customers, including brands like American Express and Databricks. G is also a prominent venture capital investor and advisor to over 60 companies and a founding member of Asia's largest community of founders and product builders. And with that, let's welcome G. G, I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining. I want to go back to the beginning. Can you Describe to everybody out there listening, what is Freshworks in your own words? And go back to 2010, what was the aha moment? So today, Freshworks is a global public company with 13 offices across eight countries with over 5,000 employees and more than 65,000 customers. So we are a leader in the customer experience and employee experience space. So we have, we sell, we provide software that helps businesses delight their customers and delight their employees. So that's where we are today. The company was founded as Fresh Desk. And the first product was also called Fresh Desk. The founding story actually uh, started in 2009 when I was uh, working in Austin, Texas and moving back from Texas to Chennai, India. I was shipping all my household goods back home. And a long story short, my fancy 40-inch LCD TV when it arrived to my home in Chennai, it was broke. Uh, like the, the shipping company uh, had damaged it. And uh, so I thought it should be fairly straightforward to call the shipping company and get the insurance claim processed. Five and a half months of back and forth, multiple phone calls and emails. Um, the company simply wouldn't uh, return, process the insurance claim. So at that point, uh, February 2010, I actually went online and shared my story on a forum where I had got the original reference for this shipping company and uh, the community started engaging. The president of the company came and apologized and the next day money was in my bank. So what I observed was as somebody who had built uh, four customer support help desks in my career before starting Freshworks, I, I saw something happening in my own uh, personal experience, which is what was a normal customer support call on a on a one to one channel between uh, on between me and the company on phone or email did not really get me the customer service that i wanted but when i took on the company and shared my experience on a public forum the company was forced to do the right thing so i started researching this 
I found that this was happening on YouTube. This was happening on Twitter. It's happening on Facebook. So that's where I got the idea to build a fresh help desk. That's why the name of the company was Fresh Desk at that time. And uh, so what we built was the first multi-channel customer support system that not only helped businesses listen to their customers on email, phone, and chat, but also social channels like Twitter and Facebook. Let's fast forward to today. What is your customer experience in simple words? What do you provide to all of those 65,000 companies? So if you look at the world of customer service, I would like to probably give you the answer in three capsules of time, right? Between 2000 to 2010 was when uh, customer service moved from only phone-based call centers to phone and email and chat and and, uh, contact us form on the website. So that was the definition of multi-channel customer service in that time period. When we started in 2010, that's what I call as the social era where businesses had to listen to customers on Twitter and Facebook and and other social media channels. And also during that time frame, telephony systems moved to cloud telephony, right? Like you had the rise of cloud-based call centers. Just before COVID, I think we started seeing the latest transformation of customer service one more time, which got accelerated due to COVID also, which is what I call as the rise of the messaging platforms, specifically the meta platforms in particular. This was happening around 2018 and 2019, but during COVID, what really happened was when customers started coming into the stores, the communication with customers moved completely to digital messaging channels. Now that has actually created this Uh, next wave of customer service where most B2C companies today, they want to engage with their customers on these modern messaging channels. You want to be marketing to your customers on WhatsApp or Instagram. You want to be talking to them and selling to them on those platforms as well as uh, supporting them on those platforms. Your very first customer came from a wholly online purchase. You never actually spoke to them. And when you had your first six customers, they came from four different continents. So when you actually opened the doors... What did that tell you as a, somebody who's a product manager at heart about what you were building? I want to build a product like the iPhone or the, uh, a BMW uh, or a Benz, right? Like, so as a customer, you want the product, right? So, and then many times you don't really actually talk to a salesperson who's trying to sell you the iPhone, right? Maybe you do, but uh, you already decided that, hey, I want the iPhone and, and you're, you're going in there with that strong want. The product is like wowing you with the experience as you touch and feel the product, you definitely want it, right? So, so that's the experience that I want to create. So original business model at Freshworks was completely inbound and product-led. Even before the term PLG became fancy, I'm talking about 2011 when we launched the product, getting customers coming inbound, driving online uh, marketing efforts to driving traffic to the website, quickly getting them to sign up so the website gets out of the way. Uh, the information about pricing is all open, transparent. It's available out there. So we don't want anybody to call tax sales. Remove the humans in the process. Get the product in the hands of the customer. Let them play with it. And I would also say the understanding, the deep understanding of the online buyer. First, let the aesthetics play. Like the customer or the buyer on who's coming online first needs to like the product. In the first 20, 30 seconds, they should feel like, wow, this looks aesthetically well done. And that's when they're going to make a decision that, hey, okay, let me spend a few hours playing with it or or a few days playing with it. Most of our customers in the early days were SMB customers. So they are not going to hire a big SI company to come and implement their software. So the do-it-yourself kind of a, a design and intuitiveness is the next aspect of product building. We 
take a lot of care in terms of not just UI and design, but product management, product marketing. Everything is built around, even the product solves the pain point for the user, not for the exec. We focus on how can we make the life of a customer support agent like super productive. So all of that comes together to create that wow experience for somebody who's coming online. And, and the pricing is affordable So and, and it's a global market. So we are not going after the Fortune 500. We are going after the Fortune 5 million, as we say it. How have you thought about competition? How have you kept your edge? So the most important uh, lesson for me is focus on the customer and, and not on the competition as much. Um, so that is really uh, what it all boils down to. So our product has to solve real customer problems. That's the number one thing, right? So when that is actually in place, you clearly know what is the problem that you're solving for the customer and you know that you're solving it in a good way and you're solving it at a reasonable price, then there is always a market. The second aspect is every market that we play in, right? So we intentionally enter these red ocean markets. In the history of software, if you go to the 2000 to 2010 timeframe, software was has always been built for the Fortune 500. It's built for the large enterprise. It's built assuming those costs in mind. Many businesses who have been burnt by this long implementation expensive products, they are now seeking out alternatives. They want software that they can buy and use immediately. Like we are talking days or a few weeks, not uh, go live 18 months down the line. So software that solves for the user pain, that offers rapid time to value. The way I say it is, hey, we want to be the leader in, in the Salesforce unhappiness market. Good for us is those markets are really huge today. You're the first SaaS company from India ever to be listed on the NASDAQ in the US. Talk us through that decision and walk us through what that moment was like for you. It was a very uh, obviously happy and emotional moment. The number one dominant emotion in my mind was, I would say, accomplishment in terms of, hey, I've actually fulfilled the promise made to my early employees and to my early investors. At the IPO, I'm creating liquidity for all the employees through all those years who have actually given their blood and sweat and tears and, and believed in the company from 2010 and 11 and 12. And they had spent the decade and today or that day in 21 was the day when we've established our currency and they can choose to uh, exercise their currency whenever they wanted. And same thing goes for the early believers, the angel investors, the early investors, seed and series A investors who all came in. The other emotion was, okay, I'm taking on a new responsibility. We are raising a billion dollars from public investors who are coming and investing in the company, believing that, okay, this is going to be the company that's going to continue to grow into a multi-billion dollar company over the next decade. So how do we go and execute? And to that extent, I'll tell you, on that day, I actually told all of my employees that, Okay, uh, we can celebrate for today, but from tomorrow, we have to go back to work because pressure is a privilege, right? So so we are India's first public SaaS company. We have inspired like so many other startups to believe that they can do it. And this means we cannot fail. Like uh, that's not an option. Uh, the whole world is watching. And so pressure is a privilege. So we have to get back to work. So, What advice do you have to other founders taking their company public? Just give us like the quick advice that you would pay it forward. I've actually been doing this for uh, many of the Indian uh, founders who are thinking of going public in the next two, three years. So it boils down to two things. One, can you get the company to operational readiness and execution readiness? So what I mean by operational readiness is, do you have all the systems in place? Because once you become a public company, you need to get to SOX compliance and things like that. So all the back office uh, uh, readiness is what I call as operational readiness. 
execution readiness is where like as a public company you have to be very predictable in your revenue and predictable in your costs so you need to be guiding the markets to where you're going to be next quarter where you're going to be next year even though it does not have to be perfect but you have to be directionally right and the the you cannot be like uh, swinging wildly on either side that uh, destroys credibility so execution readiness was much more harder for us in terms of uh, uh, revenue predictability and on the other side cost like when you are a startup uh, we had different people buying different stuff so when you centralize procurement employees who are used to a startup way of working may not really like that so how do you explain to people and get them to be execution ready talk a little bit about how you uniquely see ai transforming your business give us a prediction or two for the next decade we have outlined our ai strategy to be along three pillars the first our ai engine is called freddy like which is short form for freshworks buddy which that the uh, logo is that of a dog so basically we believe that ai i love that human's best friend so uh, our three pillars of our ai strategy is uh, uh, around freddy self service freddy copilot and freddy insights so what do we mean by that so especially our products are in customer service and employee service so we believe that uh, these two aspects of uh, um, customer service and employee service are actually now more automatable and by the way the trend of automating level 1 customer service is probably more than two decades old right like a business knows that they cannot continuously hire more and more people as your business grows so they brought in automation in the call center with ivr in the world of email help desks when we started in 2010 uh, businesses all wanted a knowledge base or a or a faq or a help center where P, uh, customers can go and help themselves because you don't want to keep hiring more and more people what is exciting now is when more customers are coming on chat how can you enable self service automation through chatbots in a natural language so that is uh, where the biggest opportunity is in customer service and employee service so our freddy self service uh, will help businesses drive a lot of automation and deflection we also believe that ai can hugely augment usage of software like that's what we call as freddy copilot so we have freddy copilot for support for sales for marketing for uh, developers so the idea here is how like if you are working on a software like if you are using a crm or you are using a customer support help desk if you have questions can you just ask those questions and get answers as opposed to searching and getting a bunch of links the same pattern is going to replicate in every software where in my customer support system i have a knowledge base an agent who is working on a customer problem today have to go and search in the knowledge base find the answer copy the link and come and paste it as opposed to hey what's the customer question here's the answer like send it directly to the customer conversationally interacting with software is the next big thing like so you will be able to conversationally accomplish uh, anything with software so that's the uh, prediction that uh, it's not even a prediction it's going to be a reality soon right everything can be done conversationally and and the third aspect is today if you look at uh, uh, data and analytics right leaders rely on structured data so we have spending a lot of time and money in employing humans to actually structure unstructured data most of the data is unstructured at source what gen ai is bringing to the table is how can ai understand unstructured data without having the need of humans to structure it so which means ai can now understand this unstructured data if you're sending out a survey to 100 customers 
AI can crunch those responses and tell you 15% of your customers are unhappy because of these two or three reasons. If you fix it, you can increase your customer satisfaction score from say 80 to 90% or whatever. You don't need to go through the uh, structured, meaning you can combine structured and unstructured data processing. So that's going to be in the next big thing. Do you have a sense of where we will shift our mindsets and our capacity that we're getting back from generative AI? I think we will move to higher order problems. So today, many, many managers are just doing the same thing, right? Like, see, customer service leaders are thinking about how can I increase my CSAT from 80% to 85%. Uh, and, and that they do one quarter is fine. But if they do 10 quarters, 20 quarters, the entire career, that's what they've been doing. So now they have to think about uh, how can I improve or uh, like, how can I move from customer satisfaction to customer delight, for example? Maybe we will uh, have those conversations. And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Cardin knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suites helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Gee, I want to transition to you. Obviously, you grew up in India. I always love to ask, is there something that you remember from your youth that you would really attribute to being a helpful memory habit I was always open-minded to try different things. So I've tried every sport. I, I've done uh, like multi-level marketing businesses and, and I, I just go in with an open mind. I think uh, the first thing I would say is, and I tell this to my sons, uh, that don't worry about like uh, focus and purpose immediately. Like do things, try different things and, and uh, uh, see what you like and, and see what sticks, right? So that is first, that's always helped me to kind of learn new stuff. When I was in college, I always used to learn by teaching other people. When I read a book and, and I try to explain it to my friends, I remember better. So I will just prepare before, just before the exam. But every exam, the week before or the two days before, my friends would come and sit and we'd sit around. They will ask me to teach them. And so I would just construct a story and, and give the whole thing. It helped me remember better. It helped them remember better. So I actually tried a training business. And when I did a training business, in 99, I, I actually did a Java training business. So like how the Java wave in 98, 99, I, I was able to witness, I saw that SaaS adoption is growing as somebody who had built for help desk in my career, but all on-prem, I thought I saw the opportunity to build a, a, a SaaS business. So also I realized that, okay, my uh, liking for teaching, I took a pre-sales and training role, and then that put me in front of customers. I saw customer problems. I got passionate about that. So I was able to transform that experience into being a product manager. So, so I think all these things connected well over time. What do you look for when you back an entrepreneur? Give us just a sense of what attributes come to mind quickly that you like to back. The first thing I look for is uh, what gives the founder the right to win in that market. Sometimes the, the type of founder that I actually uh, avoid backing because I don't believe that is 
somebody who says, okay, super smart person, they come to me and say they have studied 60 different problems and done the research on all of that. And then they picked one that seems most lucrative. I am not kind of uh, uh, fond of that kind of uh, entrepreneur because I've seen more of that fail. Rather, I would actually uh, see somebody who spent five years, eight years working in a domain and having a deep understanding of the problem. And then they realize some things are broken and then they go out wanting to fix that, right? So also I look at the craftsmanship. Like, uh, so if they're making a deck, like uh, if they have a website, if they have talked on YouTube, if they have a product demo. uh, So I look at how well finished the product is because it doesn't matter whether you're building it from India or Vietnam. A world-class product is table stakes today, right? So no customer is going to buy a product because it's built from India or it's cheap. So you can build from anywhere, but do you have that eye for quality and detail? And do you have a high level of craftsmanship? If there is a founding team, so I look at the ability to hire, like uh, are they able to attract A players, right? Like good talent. And also, do they have a well-rounded team? Like uh, Obviously, okay, the second important thing is the market, right? Uh, sometimes founders can pivot in the early stage and go to a different market. But uh, when once they go deep into solving a niche area, then it doesn't really make sense for us. So, so now we have a team of analysts who help us do the market research and things like that. But, but what I look for is what gives the founder the right to win and their ability to hire a great team and do they have the craftsmanship. Tell us why you think this is the Indian decade for tech. Give us a sense why you're very, very proud. Broadly, it's a combination of, uh, uh, I would say, three or four things, right? One, number one is the digital transformation of every business. So, uh, like, if you go to 2005 or even 2008, till 2008, software was generally built, most of the software was built for the large enterprises. So, the first point is digital transformation of every business where large and small companies, they all want to use technology now, right? So, that creates the demand side of the equation, the modus operandi became possible online go-to-market. So the reason why uh, earlier only enterprise software was viable was because these SMB customers who had like a $1,000, $2,000 budget, they were not serviceable. They were not, uh, you can't go and acquire them with the sales force, right? So the, the second ingredient of why uh, or the uh, recipe that is important is online go-to-market, right? So or you can actually sell to a customer anywhere in the world today from anywhere. Third is the leveling of the playing field from a finance standpoint. So in 2000, if you want to start a company, even setting up a data center used to cost uh, like $2 million, right? Today, Amazon AWS is providing even 10K or 100K free credit. So anybody sitting anywhere can actually get started with a a world-class data center to host that. So if they can build an app, three people or two people, if they can build something and throw it out, so they can actually start winning customers from anywhere. So that's a leveler, a huge leveler from a cost standpoint. And VC money is also available globally today. So that is the third. And the last part is where India comes in. India today has 6 million developers. A lot of the experienced folks have actually worked for companies either in the US or in India. They're coming back. And, and uh, in 2005, 2010, that kind of talent wasn't available. So now you have more and more leadership talent who have been there, done that, who have seen this success happening in India. And now they want to build these companies and they want to set up their uh, dev teams, tech teams in India, if not the whole team in India. Give us like the tips. What keeps you sane? You've obviously been through a roller coaster. Everything that you've done has not been easy. What tips do you have for entrepreneurs on how to manage the chaos and the stress of building a startup? I'll speak from my experience. The first thing I tell myself is, 
hey, whatever happens, it's still a win, right? And and I've been telling this for the last 10 years, let me say. Like, even if you built a company that was worth $5 million, that's an accomplishment. Like, or, or let's say you have five million, one million in revenue, you could still say, okay, it's it's not a bad outcome, right? So, so for somebody who has never done something, if you have built one million in revenue, if you built hundred million in revenue, oh great! So, how many people have built a hundred million dollar revenue company in the world? So, feel good about it, right? So, when I went public, okay, let's assume that okay, I'm not the CEO anymore, or or the what's the worst case that can happen? Is that still such a bad outcome? Can I still uh, be proud of what I've accomplished in life. I think I, I give this advice to all the founders. I say, first look at where you are in life and what you have done. So whatever you have done, and and many of these founders have built hundred million dollar companies, fifty million dollar companies. I said, first congrats and and just be aware that not many people in the world have reached where you are. So be grounded to the fact that even if everything goes downhill from now on, it's still okay. You feel good about it because that is important for the state of mind to be prepared for the worst, right? Now, then I say, okay, look at what are the pressures that you are self-inflicting on yourself versus what are the real problems. Like manage expectations well, as opposed to going very optimistic and not giving yourself uh, any leeway. And, and sometimes what happens is when fundraising, entrepreneurs want to maximize for valuation. So they go and raise at huge valuations, which puts pressure on the expectation, right? And then you can't grow into those valuations. So I think that is my advice is, you should always be reasonably fair, okay? Even if you get the expense, so don't optimize for super high expectation because if you reduce the number of stress points, right? That's the first step in even managing stress. Then I also also tell them everybody should have some time off, right? I play tennis every day uh, for at least one or two hours because that is the only time that I'm not checking my phone. I'm, I'm not thinking about business. I'm only thinking about the, the ball in the court, right? So I have to uh, play. I think that's very, very important for me, that time, because uh, otherwise, even if I'm watching TV or like if I'm in a movie, like I get a text message from a management team member or from an employee or from a board member. If you're always working, it's good, right? It's actually not good. The mind has to wind down for some time so that it can really come back with new ideas. Gee, I'm going to transition quickly to you. I'm going to ask you just quick fire questions, quick fire rounds here. First thing that comes to mind, tell me what you think. A book that has impacted your life. What is it? First Break All the Rules by Marcus Bingham. I love it. What do you do every morning when you get out of bed? I have coffee and I do wordle, quordle, quordle sequence. I do too. I love it. What is your biggest pinch me moment to date at Freshworks? The moment, like whatever memory you walked home and you were like, I cannot believe that happened. What was it? I would say probably the IPO moment. That's pretty cool. I agree with you. Is there an interview question you like to ask people to understand who they are and whether or not you want to work with them? Tell me what you're most proud of uh, that you've accomplished when you gave yourself a pat in the back. Is there a quote that you live by? It can be a quote of any kind by anybody, but something that really is sort of a a drumbeat of your life. Yes, uh, it's a drumbeat of my management style, which is a poem by a Tamil poet, uh, which says, which means find the best person for the job. Give them that and stay out of the way, get out of the way. I like that a lot. Last thing, one category of innovation that's not AI that you are excited about. I liked what Apple uh, did with their VR device, the Oculus equivalent of Apple. So I think if it comes to life, uh, I would love to see it where everybody can have a large screen TV without actually having to buy one, without having the space. 
I love that. Gee, I want to just end by saying thank you so much for joining us today. Everybody out there, uh, if you want to learn more, check out freshworks.com. If you're not already a customer, you should absolutely become one. And you can join us next week for Inc. the Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. Gee, we're rooting for you. This has been so incredibly just fascinating. And for you to just motivate an entire country, it's just really incredible, the leadership that you provided. And I just, I, I want to say that that's probably the most powerful thing that I took away from this not just your purpose to build a successful company that matters and to stay focused on the things that matter, but actually your motivation to bring a lot of people along with you, which is really incredible. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs>